You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Cool. So, uh, like I said, there's kind of a uh, kind of quite a bit to do uh, in the text this morning, and there's probably any number of different directions that we could trail off into. And so, I'm going to allow our time this morning really to be governed by. Uh, three questions. Uh, the first question we're going to answer is, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the true vine? The second question is going to be, what does it mean to abide in the vine? And then the third question is going to be, what is the fruit of the vine, right? So what does it mean when Jesus says he's the true vine? What does it mean to abide in the vine? And then what is the fruit of the vine? And I think if we uh, let those three questions kind of govern our time together, um, will be helped tremendously in getting to the overarching point of what Jesus is trying to say to us here. So the first question, what does it mean that Jesus is the true vine? So um, in verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus says these words again to his disciples as he is about um, to be taken away from them. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, the word true before the word wine gives us a clue as to the existence of a vine that is, that is not true, right? That if, if Jesus is going to, to the measure of using that sort of adjective right before the word vine, we should probably know that there's something that he's distinguishing himself from. And so my first question um, is, is essentially, what, like, if Jesus claims to be the true vine, what is, what is the false vine, Right? And then the second question is, well, what's the distinction, right? What is it that makes Jesus the true vine versus the false vine? And then third, of course, like, why does that, why does that matter? So, so here's, here's what happens. Jesus uses these words, and I think a lot of times when we, when we look at maybe what Jesus has to say, um, because maybe, again, we're trying to just kind of get through the reading for the day, um, we, we maybe miss some of the depth with which Jesus is speaking. And that when Jesus says, I am the true vine, this is not a phrase that is uh, just sort of plucked out of the sky, right? That Jesus is kind of like trying to think of, think of ways to explain it. And so he's like, well, so it's kind of like a vine, right? Now, Jesus is, is purposefully referencing something, um, an, an image, right, that is going to be utterly familiar um, to the disciples that he's speaking to in this moment. And so this imagery of the vine is, is actually, if, we, if we've read sort of uh, even bits and pieces of the awkward part of the Bible, right, the first two-thirds, the Old Testament, right, um, if we've read any of that, we may have heard sort of references to this idea, to this imagery, the imagery of the vine. And so Jesus is rooting this statement um, in that image that is given to us there. And so here's what I want us to do. And, and um, maybe you weren't like a Bible drill master. If you grew up Baptist, you were, which that's my heritage. So um, all kinds of baggage with that. But, um, but, if, but if you want to, here's, you, you can follow with me. You don't have to. But I'm going to read three different portions of Scripture from the Old Testament that I, I think what it will do is give us a sense of uh, not only the pervasiveness of this imagery, imagery meaning that it, it takes place in multiple places throughout the Old Testament, but also the progression of the imagery throughout the Old Testament, and that there's a story that Jesus is linking himself to, right? So Psalm chapter 80 says this, and this is the psalmist 
writing, and in verse 8 of chapter 80, this is what he says. And he's talking about God. He says, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Now, if we know the story of Exodus, which I think many of us are at least somewhat familiar with, right? We know that, that right, M- Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, they leave anyway, right? They make it out of Egypt. They're brought out of Egypt. And then, of course, they spend some time sort of wandering in the desert, but eventually they arrive to what is, quote unquote, right, the promised land. And there they will make their dwelling place. And so um, the vine in Psalm chapter 80 is the people of Israel, right? The people about, about which God says, you will be my people and I will be your God, right? So, so that's, that, that's what the, the image of the vine is referencing in Psalm chapter 80. So what goes on to happen with this vine, right? Jeremiah chapter 2 says this. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet, so he's speaking the words of the Lord to the people of Israel, and this is what God says to Israel, right? That people. Verse 21 of chapter 2 in the book of Jeremiah, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. And so, the vine that was brought out of Egypt, the vine that was planted, the vine that was planted well, ultimately becomes the wild vine. And the reason that it becomes wild is because, well, the biblical word is degenerate. Essentially, uh, it means that, that they have vacated, they have abdicated the responsibility that God has given them to be His people, right? And to evidence it in the way that they live life. And so it tells us that this vine essentially has fallen upon some pretty hard times. And then Ezekiel chapter 19 rounds up the image for us. And in Ezekiel chapter 19, verse 12, uh, Ezekiel, again, a prophet, um, says this, but the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up his fruit. They were stripped off and withered. And as for its strong stem, fire consumed it. So here's the thing, there's this, the, the image of the vine, right, which is, which is a representation of the people of Israel. Um, you, you see the progression, right, in that, that God has planted this vine, planted it with a purpose, and yet it has gone haywire, and so it needs to be uprooted, lifted out, and when it's uprooted and lifted out, removed from the source of its life, from the source of its being, it withers and it passes away. So for all that imagery and for all all sort of that, we can kind of boil it down to this, right? The people of Israel were meant to be the people both to whom God reveals himself and through whom God revealed himself to the world, right? That was the whole reason that they were made. That was the whole reason they existed. That was the blessing that, that God promised to Abraham in establishing this great nation, right? You will be my people. I will be your God. I will be known as glorious through your people, through your offspring. They were to be the vine. And the vine that was planted ultimately rebelled and was plucked up and became a withered vine. Simply it means this, right? Israel failed to obey God and therefore failed to be the people through whom God was revealed. Right? So 
No question that God revealed himself to Israel. You see that happen time and time again all throughout the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is also a chronicling of every little moment, every little point at which Israel fails to to reveal God as he has revealed himself to them. And so they've failed. So when Jesus says he's the true vine, this this is what he means. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, it's because Jesus accomplishes that which Israel could not. So where Jesus fa- I'm sorry, where Israel failed, Jesus has come and succeeded. Jesus has come and done what was always purposed for God's people to do. So Jesus is the person to whom God is fully revealed, but he's also the person through whom. God is fully revealed, which is where we go back to John chapter 1, verse 18, and it tells us that it's through this living word, that it's through Jesus, who not only was with God in the beginning, but was God in the beginning, who has come to us now in the flesh, that it's through him that God has made himself known. And in the life of Jesus, we see time and time again that where Israel was unfaithful to God, Jesus is faithful to God as he is tempted in the desert by Satan and throughout his life, right? Where Israel is unholy before God, Jesus is holy, fully set apart to God. Where Israel strove for independence from God, Jesus lives in utter dependence on God. Where Israel fails to make God known, Jesus makes God known perfectly. Jesus is the true vine. That's what he means when he says that. But why does it matter, right? Well, if we continue reading in John chapter 15, right, it says this, that that Jesus is the true vine. And in verse 4, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So why does it matter? (laughs) Well, it matters because Jesus has done everything that we can't do so that we can have everything that we don't deserve to have. Right? That we can abide in Christ, that we can experience life in His name, that, that when we abide in Him, that that's necessarily what happens. That instead of the death and the dry bones of the old life, we experience the fruit and the joy of the new life in Him. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, again, it's not just... A simple, uh, a simple metaphor, right? It's a calling in. It's a calling to dwell in Him as the source from which all of these good things happen, right? All of these good things exist. It's only in the true vine that we experience, right, the pruning of the Father, as it tells us in verse 2. The Father lovingly cares for the vine, that He prunes it, causes it to grow in health, right? I'm not necessarily talking physically here. Only in the true vine can we experience life as a result of the Father's pruning, right? Only in the true vine can we produce good fruit through the Father's pruning. 
And that's where it goes on to say that we can do nothing apart from Him. And He's not saying nothing at all. Like, of course, you can wake up and put your pants on and make yourself a bowl of cereal. Um, although for some, that may be more challenging than others. But He's saying you can do nothing of consequence. You can do nothing of eternal value. You can do nothing that really ulti- ultimately matters. You can do nothing that won't ultimately wither unless you are connected to the vine that does not wither. And so with that, now that we know what it means for Jesus to be the true vine, what does it mean for us to abide in the vine, right? Well, John 15, uh, verses 7 through 8 should give us some hint here. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then he goes on to say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is essentially for us here explaining the metaphor, right? that he's just used. If Jesus is the true vine, it is by him that God is fully revealed. He is the revelation of God, his perfect image and likeness. And it is into that reality that we have been invited to abide. Now, so what, is, what does abide mean, right? Uh, you, could, you could use any number of synonyms. I said that right. Got it. Got it right the second time. Um, any number of synonyms, right? Abide, to, to, to dwell somewhere. Right? which I think is probably the most appropriate in light of the fact that we just came out of a portion of Scripture where God said to his disciples through Jesus, uh, I'm going to my Father's house. I have many rooms there. Right? That there's a dwelling place. There's a place to dwell. There's a reality to dwell in. And that reality is the reality that it's in Jesus' faithfulness that we become fruitful. It's in Jesus' faithfulness that we get made faithful, where, where we where we experience the power and the ability necessary, right? To keep His commandments. So abiding, I, right? I'm going to try to, to synthesize it or make it a little bit more simple. Um, there, there's something that abiding is and there's something that abiding isn't, right? Um, abiding first and foremost, is residing in that reality. And, and, and here's what I mean by, by uh, living in that reality, right? So, so there's, a, there's a way in which all of us view the world, and all of it's colored by any number of different things. Maybe it was your family experience growing up. Maybe it was the kind of culture you were raised in. It, like, right? All of it kind of creates this, big, this one big worldview, a, a, a way that you perceive the world to operate and to abide in Christ is to see that worldview ultimately conformed to Jesus' worldview, right? So that means that where your vision is blurry, you put on the lenses that are Christ's gospel and what Christ purposes to do in the world, and by that, you see clearly, you see clearly that the things of this world are not as shiny as maybe you think they are, that this world is not as ultimate as you had always thought it to be, that maybe, just maybe, God is doing something bigger than you, and that it's come in and through Jesus, and then we get free access to Him through the power of the Holy Spirit for His glory. 
that that is the lens by which you see life, by which you see the world, by which you operate on a daily basis. So when you are wronged, you can respond knowing, I don't need vengeance because vengeance isn't mine to take. Or when somebody has a need, you can meet that need saying, you know what, All of my, everything that I have is nothing compared to what I've been given. Right? So every little interaction, every little moment gets formed, gets shaped by this reality. That's what it means to abide in Christ. It means to live in that reality that He is the true vine. And so that is abiding. But I think sometimes when we, when we hear that word abide, maybe we, um, maybe we get sort of the image of like a hammock, you know, where we're just kind of, we're hanging out in that waiting room for heaven, what are you doing? Just abiding, just chilling, just hanging right here. This little reality, it's great, it's good, right? And yet abiding, while it is living in, dwelling in that reality, it is not inactivity, right? Another definition of abiding, or at least in the biblical sense of the word that's used here, um, they would define it as to continue in a certain state, right? Right? And so there's a, the, uh, let's just be honest, right? If we're Christians in the room this morning, like there are areas, there are parts of our lives uh, where that lens is not in operation, right? Or maybe we've taken them off because we either don't want to see or we can't see or, or, um, or maybe it's something that we're completely and totally unaware of, but there are areas of our lives in which this reality has not yet taken all the ground that it needs to take in order for it to have, to, to have essentially manifested itself completely in you, right? And that's where this idea of obedience, continued obedience, continued growth, continued pruning by the Lord, right, through His grace, that we experience, again, that continued state. And so it's in that context, right? Verse 7, uh, verse seven the, the first part says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then what? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, last week, right, we had a very similar, very similar phrase when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And then he said, look, whatever you ask of me, I will do for you. Now, last week, what we recognized was that when we put that in context, right, it was a response to verse 12 of chapter 14, um, where, where Jesus says, if, if you love me, anyone who loves me will do the things that I do, right? And so we talked about how uh, that offer of Jesus in verse in chapter fourteen um, to give us whatever we ask is in response to that, right? Like that, whatever we need to be able to do what Jesus does, if we ask for it in His name, He'll give that to us. And it's very much the same vein in this portion of text as well. We can ask Jesus for whatever we wish and it will be done for us because what we're asking for is for fruitfulness. Because the gospel has so changed the way we look at the world that we begin to realize that what's most important is not our benefit but His glory. And so what we begin to ask about is less about what will benefit us and more about what will benefit His glory. And so if that's pruning for us, if that's difficulty for us, if that's, if that's times uh, of living meagerly for us, then that's then that's what we're asking the Lord for. And it's to that request that the Lord responds, I will give you 
whatever you ask because we're abiding in His reality. We're living in His reality. We're living in His world, in His understanding of the purpose and the plan for the universe. And we're conforming ourselves to it. So if Jesus is the true vine, and if that's what it means to abide in the vine, what is, what's the fruit, right? What's the, what's the outcome? What's the fruit of the vine? Well, we already got a hint to it, right? Where it says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment. Now, so here's the thing, right? You'll notice that Jesus goes from plural commandments to singular commandment. And here's a, here's a distinction I want to make, right? Ultimately, the fruit of abiding in Jesus is simply this, right? By, by abiding in Jesus, we get to do what Israel couldn't. We get to be obedient. We get to be faithful to, to the Lord Jesus. We get to be faithful to what he's called us to do. We get to operate as the people, not only to whom God reveals himself, but also through whom God reveals himself, right? Right? So unlike Israel, we don't stop at step one. We actually engage step two as well, right? God hasn't just revealed himself to us, but now we get, we get to reveal God like through our being. Now, to bear fruit, if to bear fruit is to do what Israel didn't, that means it's holistic, right? To bear fruit is, is a whole life endeavor. It takes place in way more areas than we could than we could count. But what Jesus does when he goes from commandments to commandment, right, is he narrows the field for us in this context, right? So he has two emphases that he's getting to um, and that he wants us to, to, to take in. And the first one is love, which we're going to see in just a minute. And then the second one is mission, uh, which we'll see uh, a little bit after that. Right, so verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so if the first emphasis is love, right, that the first, the first fruit that, that Jesus emphasize is, emphasizes is this fruit of love, it's not just a general love, right? We have to remember that this, that this takes place in context. And so what the, the people that Jesus is talking to are his disciples. They are people who are in, in the vine, right? And he says, my commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. Now how, right? He tells us to love one another and he tells us how. He says, as Christ has loved us. Now here's the thing, right? Right? Um, we know that just a few short chapters from now, Jesus is going to be removed from them and he's, he's going to go and do what? He's going to go do what verse 13 says. He's going to go lay down his life for his friends. Now here's the thing. Anytime we talk about love, right, in, in a room, we have to recognize the fact that um, that, that word, um, one, is, so, is so, very, so very broadly used and then I think, too, uh, has a, a cultural definition that unfortunately we tend to uh, sort of acquiesce to um, as opposed to sort of the, the, the theological definition, right? Jesus' definition of love, which is presented for us here. 
So Jesus' love, like Jesus' understanding of love, Jesus' uh, definition of love is unique because in his defining work of love, like the way that he defines love, which is, which is on the cross, right, is unique because in it he gains nothing, right? Like, in fact, it's entirely the opposite. He, he forfeits everything, Right? Philippians chapter 2, um, verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? And so when... When Jesus says, look, the, the, the purest example, the purest form of love, the simplest way that I can explain love for you is that, is that of a man or a woman who would lay down his or her life for a friend. It's unique. It's an entirely different definition of love than the one that our culture has. Right? The, the, the definition that our, our culture has is not just enshrined culturally, it's even in our dictionaries, right? It tells us that love is an especially intense feeling or an especially intense emotion or uh, an, an ex, uh, especially intense sexual desire. Look at, like, I'm not just saying that, that's in Webster's dictionary. Look at love, there's the definition intense feeling, intense emotion, intense desire. And all of those things, all of those things are focused inward, individually, right? Instead of on the other party, right? So love is that which I experience from that other person. So I experience either intense emotion, intense desire, intense feeling. And that's not at all the way, <laughs> the way love is described for us by Jesus, where, where love is action and where love is utterly, uh, utterly divorced from self. That, that in essence, in order to love someone, you actually have to, you have to sort of uh, uh, disregard yourself for the other person. And so this is just an aside, but perhaps love has been fleeting for you. Could it be? that it is fleeting for you because our cultural definition of it is in and of itself fleeting? It necessitates feeling. It necessitates emotion. And here's the reality. If you've ever had feelings and emotions, you know that sometimes they're here and sometimes they're here. And anywhere in between. And yet the love that Jesus is calling us to and the love that Jesus extends to us is entirely different from that, isn't it? If we look at the kind of love Jesus is placing before us, we keep it in the context of the vine, here's how it would lead us to understand love, right? So in the metaphor, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, we produce the fruit, which in this emphasis primarily is love, right? And we produce that fruit, we produce the fruit of love through the pruning work of God. Right, so as we are pruned, we produce more fruit. Now, 
I am no green thumb by any means. I'm a black thumb. I've killed every plant imaginable um, despite my best efforts, right? Even like a cactus, which is like you, ju- you literally just put it there. And somehow it still didn't work out for me. Right? But pruning is essential to, to the work of, of the gardener, the one who would, who would tend to the plant, right? Because it, it cuts away sort of that, that which is dying or that which would prevent, right, the fruit from, from being able to flourish, from being able to grow. And so when, when Jesus tells us that, that he's the vine and that God is the vine dresser and that it's in God's pruning that we, that we not only experience some fruit, but we experience more fruit as we are further pruned, right? We begin to understand that this is God separating from us that which will hinder our love of one another, right? So when God is pruning, here's essentially what he's teaching us. He's teaching us to disregard self which is what's necessary for love, right? He's teaching us to, or or he's cutting away from us the pride, the selfishness, the jealousy, the envy, right? The anger, the deceit that would keep us from loving one another. And he's giving us, again, he's giving us an, an experience of life that is found in abiding in him. And so in the same way that love was costly for Jesus, for us to love one another is also going to be costly whether it's in your marriage or whether it's in your church, which is really who, who Jesus is addressing here, his people, his people not only to whom he wants to reveal himself, but through whom he wants to reveal himself to the world. So that's the first emphasis. The first emphasis is love. But then he says this in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command, to, what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so here's here's what happens, right? That, That love ultimately manifests itself, right? And obedience to Jesus ultimately manifests itself in going and bearing fruit that your fruit also should abide, right? That the glory of life in Jesus' name, that the confidence which comes from abiding, dwelling in that reality where Jesus is sovereignly in control of all things, where we don't have to worry about a president, whoever, right? That that reality is eventually, right, what will comprise all people's reality, right? That there's coming a place where Jesus reigns and rules in glory, and in that place He will reign peacefully um, in in a way uh, like nothing we've ever seen. And we're to go and to invite people into that reality now to experience it with great hope for that which is to come. And so, <laughs> this is what my final question from the text is. Right, we've kind of answered, um, what does it mean for Jesus to be the true vine? What does it mean to abide in Him, right? And what's the fruit of the vine? Love and mission. And so many other things, but those are the two primary emphases here. But my final question that I have is this, does Jesus' love for me depend on my obedience? Right? 
Because here's the thing, all throughout this, like we've seen time and time again, like if you love me, you'll obey me. And if you, and, and if you obey me, then you're going to dwell in my love and you're going to abide in me. And, and, and right, it's this constant back and forth. And I think if we're not careful, we could read that and say, well, then that, I better get to obeying. And while that is still true, <laughs> if we're Christians in the room, we should get to obeying. Right? The, the question, does Jesus' love for me depend on my obedience, is an utterly important question. Because if, if the answer to that question is yes, then that means that Jesus is just like every other God whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's Vishnu, right? Whatever. whatever. And so I think John actually uh, dispels that quite clearly um, in the text, right? Three verses I'm going to read to you from it that were purposefully sort of skipped over. Verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Right? Already, already you are clean. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And here's the thing, I know none of us are particularly psyched about grammar, but it comes in, in handy here in verb tenses, right? And it says, so have I loved you. Past tense, it's done, it's finished. So when Jesus on the cross says it's finished, he means it's finished, it's done. He has loved you. And then, of course, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. So does... Jesus' love for me depend on my obedience? Absolutely not. Is obedience part of the joy that is given to us in abiding in Christ? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And it's by our obedience. It's by our obedience that we get to accomplish that which Israel cannot accomplish, that which we have always needed Jesus to come and do for us. We get to be faithful. We get to be obedient. We get to be the people, not only to whom God reveals himself, but through whom God reveals himself to the world as he prunes us together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the opportunity again, Lord, to gather as your people. Thank you, Lord, that you have drawn us into yourself, Lord, that we uh, experience life abiding in the true vine. Father, that um, our worth is not in what we own, not in, not in the strength of flesh and bone, Father, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. And so, Father, I, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who abide in your reality, Lord, who, who let the reality of what Jesus has come and done shape everything that we are, every decision that we make, Lord, but most clearly would it manifest itself, Lord, in our love for one another um, and in our love for the world around us. And so, Lord, as we come and partake of the table, may we be reminded, Father, the, the, the way 
Lord, that we experience um, peace and joy. Um, and that is through uh, this perfect gift that's been given on our behalf, this, this uh, greater love that no man has. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.